It's Monday, July 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The release of an audio recording has shed new light on the seizure of a British tanker on the Strait of Hormuz by Iran's Revolutionary Guard. It's another escalation in tensions on this critical waterway where one-fifth of the global oil exports pass through as Iran continues to struggle with sanctions that are crippling their economy. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this, Trump versus the squad, and the upcoming Mueller testimony. Next, genetic genealogy has been used to help solve cold cases involving suspected killers and rapists, but now it has been used to exonerate Christopher Tapp for the rape and murder of Angie Dodge in 1997. Experts now say this technique could be used to clear others who have been wrongly convicted. Sal Hernandez, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for another first for genetic genealogy. Finally, the viral aging app, FaceApp, was nothing but good fun until reports came out that the company was owned by Russians and the app could potentially get all of the photos on your camera roll. But is there really anything to worry about? Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for the Washington Post, took a look under the hood of this app and lets us know if you should worry about your privacy. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If you obey, you, be, you will be safe. Alter your course to uh, 360 degrees immediately. Over. This is a British warship Foxtrot 236. So I reiterate that as you are conducting transit passage in a recognized international strait, under international law, your passage must not be impaired, impeded, obstructed, or hampered. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Tensions with Iran continue in the Strait of Hormuz. Britain is weighing its next moves after the Iranian Revolutionary Guard seized a British tanker. They had their military boat a little too far away. They couldn't stop. There's audio released saying that they couldn't be there in time. And there's video that Iran released showing the Revolutionary Guard rappelling down from a helicopter. Pretty dramatic stuff. But once again, this is kind of this tit-for-tat that's been going on with seizing different tankers. What do we know what's going on in the area? That's right. We see these continued tensions in the region, not just involving the United States and Iran, but now some of our allies, including the British. It is uh, seemingly escalating. We saw last week claims that the U.S. had shot down um, an Iranian drone and then the Iranian said, no, you didn't. And then <laughs> this seizure. So uh, this is a very tense situation. And I think we're seeing a lot of concern in the United States about how we're responding, how we should be responding, what possible escalation could come next. So very concerning times here and there at this moment. This next step really concerns how Britain is going to respond. But there's not really much they can do from what I've been reading. They're kind of hamstrung. The United States has so many sanctions against Iran. That part of it is already taken care of. They're trying to rule out military responses. So what can they do to respond to this? There are so many sanctions already in place, it's hard to add more sanctions. There is a limit to the amount that you can sanction. Also important to remember that Great Britain is in a bit of political tumult of its own. A changing of their leadership after Theresa May announced she would be stepping down and a real internal domestic focus on Brexit and how they're going to handle Brexit. They still haven't figured that out. So this comes at maybe the worst time. 
But we know the British. And furthermore, we know the Americans. We know at least President Trump and quite a good deal of people on Capitol Hill do not want to see an escalation. They do not want to see war break out. And so trying to find some way to appear to be doing something in response without further escalating to to the brink of, of warfare. Let's move on to something a little closer to home. The president continues to fight with the squad, the four progressive Democrats. And there's some new tweets that he sent out. He says that uh, you know these people are incapable of loving the country, uh, that he, they need to apologize to America and Israel for the hateful things they've said. This has been going on for more than a week now. And the Washington Post had a story that kind of detailed how this whole thing has been playing out. And the president is not liking what that story is saying. The president appears to be trying to engage in a deliberate strategy. He thinks that his base and his supporters are going to respond affirmatively for him with these attacks. He thinks that it looks good on him to attack these four women. And he may be right about some of his base. We had polling with Reuters that found that his tweets, which have been roundly criticized as being racist, that people in, in his party were more likely to say that they thought they were OK. It seems to be a sort of a, a, of a proving because Trump said it where they might not have otherwise. And so that is the case. But it's, it's not responding in the same way among independents, among those who are more moderate. They're not having a positive response that Trump would like. And that's a real political risk for him. We know that it's playing well with the base when he was at his rally in North Carolina. They're the ones that started that chant, send, her, uh, send them back, send her back. That proves how things that the president says and does and tweets, they hang on every word and they'll respond in kind but, uh, you know, according to the Washington Post, the president said he he was he thought it was a positive thing he was getting involved there because the Democrats were fighting in between themselves. He thought he can get in there and kind of make a quick few jabs. And it kind of totally backfired. The Washington Post spoke to 26 White House aides, advisors, lawmakers, a lot of people involved with the, this response. And they paint a very hectic picture of how to manage this whole PR scramble. It's also important to note that the president didn't like run this by his advisors and like have a deliberate strategy to do this. This is really sort of a strategy as he goes. And so it's hard when you've got uh, dozens of aides who have to defend, who have to echo, who have to amplify the things the president is saying when he's not coordinating with them ahead of time. Uh, it makes it very difficult to be on one page and does make for that sort of hectic situation right. you describe. Last thing I wanted to bring up was the big moment on Wednesday. Special counsel Robert Mueller is going to be testifying before a couple of House committees. Chairman uh, Gerald Nadler was on Fox News on Sunday, and uh, Chris Wallace is <laughs> a totally pertinent question. He said, a lot of people are kind of over this thing now. Is this hearing going to be a dud? I don't think so, but what do you think, Ginger? It could be a dud. That's a real possibility. We know that Robert Mueller is a very disciplined speaker. He's very good about not getting off script. So it would be a shock if we hear any surprises different from what uh, we all know was already in the report. Uh, they're hoping that more people pay attention when he's talking instead of reading the written report. But that's still to be seen. But uh, at least people in Washington will be watching very closely on Wednesday. Yeah, people are saying that he might even just say, hey, you know, refer to page 220 something and not even give a complete answer. So, I mean, it's going to be crazy, but there's going to be, you know, a ton of calls for impeachment from Democrats after these hearings. It's, it'll be it'll be an interesting day. And it'll be even more interesting if the president live tweets it. 
That is true. We always love those. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Some days you have to accept the reality of this might have been the end for me is sitting in prison for a crime I never committed. Today is that day where I can look at them and tell them there will be no more hearings. That the judge and the state gave me the actual innocence, which I truly rightfully deserve. Joining us now is Sal Hernandez, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Sal. Hey, Oscar. So uh, one of my favorite topics is this uh, genetic genealogy and how it's really been helped to lock up a lot of killers and rapists right now. This is the first time that instead of locking somebody up, it helped exonerate somebody of a crime that they didn't commit. And this man actually spent 20 years in jail for this. He gave police a false confession. They put him in jail. I think his term was going to be for 30 years. And little by little, things just weren't adding up anymore. This past week, finally, he was exonerated of both the rape and murder of 18-year-old Angie Dodge. Tell us about this story. Christopher Tapp, he confessed to the crime back in 1997. And, you know, the backstory is that the the police department in uh, Idaho Falls, that they pushed him to give him what was essentially a bad confession, a coerced confession, because they were actually trying to get to a friend of Christopher Tapp. But when the DNA came back and it didn't match uh, Tapp's friend, they focused on Tapp himself because he had the confession. That's what took him to trial. That's what got him convicted. And years later, Tapp continued to claim his innocence. And one of the biggest things that would stand out to attorneys at the Innocence Project, there was no DNA from the crime scene that matched Tapp. And there were uh, there were semen samples and a pubic hair that was tested that provided no matches to law enforcement. And I have to add, it didn't match any of the other suspects that law enforcement had been looking at. Right. So here was this DNA sample that nobody knew where it came from. And this man had been spending 20 years in prison for it. And, and one thing in particular, you mentioned, you know, his DNA didn't match anything there at the scene. The working theory was that He was uh, one among a few people that were involved that day in in the rape and death of Angie Dodge. So they always thought there was other suspects, although they never had anybody. And one person that was instrumental in really saying, hey, let's try this genetic genealogy pathway was Dodge's mother herself. She never gave up. They said there was other people involved she wanted to find out. So she helped push for this to be done. Right. And that was one thing that, you know, police and folks at the Innocence Project actually pointed out that here was the victim's mother who, after several years and after looking at everything, she became convinced that Christopher Tapp was not involved with the murder. So she became an advocate for him. She pushed for law enforcement to keep looking at the case. She reached out to the Innocence Project to pick it up and to investigate it. I think that DNA sample was only about 61 percent of the information that analysts typically need. But from that, they were able to do the work and they led they got led to a new suspect named Brian Lee Drips Sr. He lived across the street from Angie Dodge in 1996. And so at that point, he fits the profile. And then this is my favorite part always, because this is just an investigative tool, this genetic genealogy. The detectives still have to do the footwork after. So they followed Drips. And he threw a cigarette butt out of his car window. They picked that up and that matched the DNA at the scene. So they were able to find his guy. They talked to him and he admitted his involvement. They had already previously exonerated 
the rape because DNA evidence wasn't adding up. But this last piece was they exonerated him from the murder charge. Tell us a little bit about your conversation with C.C. Moore. She's their lead genealogist at Parabon Nano Labs. And there, that company, they've already, I mean, they've already found about 50 suspects uh, accused of uh, rape or murder, you know, through this DNA genealogy. What is her thought process behind this whole thing? I know she says this is one of the most fulfilling victories she's had so far. Right. She said that, you know, I think she described it as pure joy, right? Because um, I believe that this was uh, Parabon's um, 56th case that they have used investigative genealogy to identify either a victim or a suspect, more suspects than anything. So they've been in the game for quite a while now. But for CC, she was saying that this was one of the most difficult DNA samples that she has been able to work on and actually get a successful result out of, meaning, you know, she identified somebody. So that was very encouraging. And that was actually something that was very fulfilling because the sample was only 61%. Um, it was very degraded. And not only that, but when she ran it through the GenMatch database, she got a very distant match. So she mentions that she grades, usually grades cases from a one to five, five being the worst. And she usually does not take any five cases because it usually won't yield a good result. It just doesn't take up the time, right? Uh, this was a five, but it was at the urging of, you know, Dodge's mom that she decided to go ahead and do it, push through and, and she got a break. Sal Hernandez, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. The app has access to your whole camera roll, but it only uploads the one image you've selected, they say. You also don't have to give FaceApp your name or email. How long do they hold on to your data? The app's terms of service grant it a perpetual license to whatever you upload. Joining us now is Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. You bet. We're going to be talking about the hottest app right now. It's the Face app. Everybody's having a great time with it, putting their pictures in and then seeing what they're going to look like when they're older. It looks eerily accurate and a lot of people will post and say, I look just like my grandpa, things like that. So it, it's a lot of fun, but then... Right away, all the calls about privacy started coming in. The DNC started even warning the Democratic contenders for the president, telling everybody to delete this app. FaceApp was developed by Russians, which is true. Mm. There was also reports of you give them access, they can download your whole camera roll. Tell us a little bit about this, because I always love your columns. You do the footwork. You do a forensic analysis of what the apps are actually doing. So tell us what you found out. One interesting kind of wrinkle in this that should give us some context is that actually this app is not new. Right. It has been around since 2017 and has topped the App Store previously. Previously, they also could like put a beard on your face or change your gender. I think what's changed is since 2017, Americans are, number one, a lot more aware of the role of Russian technology potentially right. impacting our society after the 2016 election. So we're more suspicious of that. And then also, I think we're more aware of privacy and the concerns now, uh, particularly about our face and giving you know the value of facial recognition and giving that data to somebody else. Um, right. I think it's good that we're concerned about apps, but I don't necessarily see any evidence from looking under the hood here and talking to the CEO of this company that we should be any more concerned about this one than we are about a lot of other apps out there, like TikTok, the really popular social network right. that's owned by a Chinese company and frankly has 
more invasive um, data habits than uh, than the face app does. And we've talked about this before. People rarely read through the privacy policies and people's guards get let down even more when it reaches number one on the Apple App Store and Google Play Store and they label it, you know, an editor's choice. So tell us about your analysis specifically when you look under the hood and see how much data is being transferred over. Did you notice anything peculiar? What did you find out there? When I looked under the hood, and I also had some other uh, privacy and security experts uh, here in San Francisco look look as well, we didn't see anything that was super unusual. So there are a couple trackers in there that um, send it data to send send data about who's using it to Facebook and to Google, but kind of everybody in the in in Silicon Valley has that these days. The other thing we noticed is that it is doing the processing on the photos in the cloud, which is to say it takes the photo and takes it off your phone and moves it to their servers. And that's where kind of the problem comes in. But there was one kind of meme that was going around that said like, oh, it has access to your whole photo collection and is uploading your whole photo collection to the cloud. We saw no evidence that that was actually happening. I had a conversation with the CEO of uh, of the company that makes this app, and he also said that that's just not the case. They're only taking one photo at a time, uploading it to the cloud, and working on it there. Now, that photo specifically, though, when you sign up for the app and you download and everything, you do give them the perpetual license to do whatever they want with that specific photo. They say they deleted off of their servers after about 48 hours, but still that photo, that likeness, they can do whatever they want with that image. That's exactly right. And I think part of the conundrum that we're in here is that uh, those app store pages and those privacy policies that nobody really reads are really unhelpful. You know, we don't we can't really get the information that we need as consumers to figure out what these folks are really up to. So, yeah, legally, they have the right to do whatever they want to um, with these images and hold on to them for as long as they'd like. We have to hope that Apple and Google will do the job of vetting this to make sure that they're telling the truth when they say things like, we delete most of the photos after 48 hours. Or as the CEO also told me, he said that they're not doing anything with our photos other than making them look older. They're not, for example, secretly in the business of facial recognition or even sharing these photos with the Russian government. That was sort of the other big meme that came out of this. I already thought, because they're a Russian company, that means the Russian government has access. Again, in that conversation I had with the CEO, he said, not at all. And photos uh, submitted by people outside of Russia don't even enter Russia. Their servers aren't in Russia, so the government wouldn't have access to them there. So that's what he said. Do we trust him? That's the harder thing to get a handle on. But I didn't see any evidence from what I could see in how the app behaved that he was lying about some of these things. What do you make of this whole dust up with this specific app? They were having a lot of fun with it. And then everybody took that big step back and said, oh, man. Russians are involved. Like, what do we do? My takeaway is that we should be concerned about this app, but not necessarily any more concerned than we are about a lot of apps in our phones. But we should be, um, you know, going through a process of questioning these things. I tell everybody, you know what? Do an app census on a pretty regular basis. Look through your phone. If you see apps there that you don't really use that often or that you don't really know where they came from or maybe how they make money, delete them from your phone because you can't count on Apple and Google who run these app stores to to vet them and make sure that they're not trying to steal your data. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.